cliffcentral.com. All right, welcome to the Renegade Report. Um, as you can hear, I am going solo for a while. Jonathan Woods is busy saving who knows how many lives. Uh, so he's on his way, so he'll probably join us halfway through this podcast, and I will chastise him accordingly. So, our guest today is Ian Benson. He's a, a legal philosopher, a writer, and a professor who is currently lecturing at the University of Notre Dame in Australia. Uh, Ian has a master's degree from Cambridge and a PhD from our very own WITS. His work has been cited in the Supreme Court of Canada as well as the Constitutional Court of South Africa. So Ian's focus is mainly around freedom of association, uh, conscience and religion, pluralism, multiculturalism, and the relationship between law, religion, and human rights. So, I mean, after that extensive bio, Ian, Good afternoon. How are good, you? Good afternoon, Roman. Very nice of you to have me here. No, I mean, the pleasure's all mine. You, you visit us often, so I wouldn't want to miss this opportunity. So, Ian, why these topics? Do you, why do you choose to specialize in topics such as this? <coughs> well, I, I, I ended up uh, focusing on, uh, in my legal practice, on certain constitutional and human rights cases over the years and came to understand that often cases would turn on the meaning of words. So key words would, would turn out to be important in a case. And sometimes um, these words had not actually been analyzed very deeply. Let me give you an example. Some years ago, in my home province in Canada of British Columbia, out there on the what some call the left coast or the wet coast. Out, I've been. It's definitely the wet coast. Yes, the wet coast. Uh, there was a case involving... Uh, the Education Act and the meaning of the term secular. The 19th century Education Act required that, <coughs> excuse me, education be taught on a strictly secular basis. And the interesting thing is that that provision of the Education Act from the 1890s had in the next session that uh, every school day should begin with the recitation of the Lord's Prayer the Christian Lord's Prayer. So this was curious because in the one provision, it said that education had to be strictly secular, but in the other, that it had to begin with prayer. So clearly in 1890s, in the 1890s, secular didn't mean what many people now would mean by it, yeah. namely that it couldn't be religious. So when the matter went to the trial court uh, and a decision of some school trustees related to books, um, controversial books about same-sex parenting. The trustees had based their decision in part on canvassing the views of the parents in that area of British Columbia. Yes. And some of these parents were religious, Hindus, um, Christians, various types of, of religious believers. And the trustees themselves, some of them, based their viewpoint on the appropriateness of the books on their own religious views. Now, it was argued by the advocates in favor of the, the, the gay books that the trustees in taking into consideration religion or basing it on, on their own religious views had breached this principle of secular in the act. All right. And what this forced us all to think about was what does secular mean? The trial judge argued that secular meant that no decision of the elected trustees could be based on religion or influenced by religion. 
Now, that was extraordinarily significant because if no decision of elected trustees could even be influenced by religion, even their own personal religious beliefs, I think the unintended effect of this decision would be that only atheists or agnostics could have their beliefs active in public education. Yes. I mean, I sort of understand that. So so the the word secular to the trial judge, what it meant to him was that you cannot use, if you're a person in an authority or fiduciary position, you cannot use your personal religious views to justify decisions of that institution. Right. But the problem there was, as we uh, argued and eventually prevailed, uh, we, we took a step back and said, look, the, every citizen is a believer in something. Whether they're atheists or agnostics or religious, we're all believers. Yes. The question isn't whether we believe, but what we believe in. To exclude the beliefs of religious citizens, but allow the beliefs of non-religious citizens to be the only operative sets of moral debates in the, in the culture would be a kind of unintended exclusion of religion from any public function. Yeah. And that can't have been in the mind of the legislature's legislator in the 19th century and didn't fit with the Constitution in Canada in the 1990s, um, where there's a guarantee of religious and conscientious freedom. So the trial judge was overturned at the Court of Appeal, three judges to zero by the BC Court of Appeal, who determined that secular, as it meant, what it meant in the 19th century, had changed its meaning in the current age and now had come to mean non-religion, but didn't always mean that. And the history supports that. Secular used to mean the age or the times or the, or in contradistinction or in opposition to eternity. Oh, yes. So secularum was the period of time. It wasn't non-religious. This is very important. So it was important to take a step back and say, look, what is the public sphere? The public sphere is the realm of competing belief systems. Some of these are atheists, some are agnostic, some are religious. But what was interesting was those who had, I think, a bit of an axe to grind against religion wanted the public sphere to be read as a non-religious zone. Yes. And I think that was overturned ultimately, not only by the BC Court of Appeal, but by the Supreme Court of Canada, when some years later it went all the way there. And an article I wrote on the nature of the secular um, seems to have been rather widely read on that point, and, and I was pleased that it, it, it got, uh, got some uptake from the judges. So, so why is it important for you to believe that religion has a role to play in, maybe not the functioning of the state, so to speak, but that religion has a role to play in how people make decisions, especially if there are part of the of an institution of sorts well actually i i in my teaching and in the way i think about culture these days i i take a step back again and i ask the question about metaphysics what are metaphysics those are those things that are not material you can't weigh them you can't sort of uh, prove them in the way you would prove a scientific experiment they are meta above the physical metaphysics yes and they include traditionally things like justice or um, wisdom Beauty, truth, goodness, um, or in the contemporary parlance, spirituality. Now, not all of these things, truth, justice, um, goodness, uh, fairness, they're not empirically verifiable. They're not scientific concepts. They're not material. They're 
metaphysical, okay? Yes. Now, the realm of metaphysics is not owned by religion, but religions, by and large, partake of metaphysics, okay? So, it's really important to understand that for citizens in a society like South Africa or Canada or where I live now in Australia, any country, citizens are going to be committed either explicitly or implicitly or a mixture of both to a whole bunch of metaphysical commitments. So let me give you one that's popular in South Africa. In South Africa, the term justice is very important. The term equality is important. And the term transformation is important. Yes. All of these things are metaphysical. They're, they're, not, they're not susceptible to weighing on a scale. But what they require in order to understand them properly, every one of them, equality, transformation, um, justice, they require broader concepts of what is fair and just in a society as a whole. And tr- sometimes our blindness to the importance of metaphysics uh, leads us into a kind of unsatisfactory address of, of other questions. So, a, a bit, a bit to, to, or left wing here, but uh, you're not a legal positivist then? No, no, in no. In that case, because many legal positivists, uh, like Pierre de Foss is a well-known one locally, he would say what is fair is what is determined by the Constitution of South Africa. And if you don't agree with that, then it's unfair or something to that effect. Yeah. So are you saying that a legal document such as a constitution where it has the word fair, we have to take into account uh, many various factors to yeah. give it its full uh, understanding of the word fair. Well, it's a good question. In the South African constitution, for example, you allow discrimination. Now, this may strike some people as surprising. Well, the reason that you allow discrimination is because what the constitution precludes or makes wrong is unjust discrimination. Yes. Meaning that just discrimination, those distinctions that are based within the four corners of justice, they're allowed. Now, what might those be? Well, when we think about it, there are actually a whole set of distinctions we allow in a free and democratic society that are important and are discriminatory. So, for example, age discrimination. We allow it all the time. We don't allow 12-year-olds to get behind the wheels of cars. We don't allow... Uh, minors to do ver- a variety of things. We don't allow certain people who don't have certain kinds of capacities to do other things, whether it's driver's licenses or what have you. Indeed. On the positive side, we allow groups to make distinctions uh, that are otherwise impermissible. For example, a women's group could make the case that they want to have a women's women-only executive. That would constitute sex discrimination, but in most contexts in South Africa, it would be allowed. Similarly, a church or a synagogue or a, um, a Muslim organization would be entitled to insist uh, for their leadership on a member of their faith community. And I think most people would understand that that is an important allowance an importantly legally type legal type of discrimination. Well, I think reasonable people would, yes. Right. The problem, however, is that some people have an insufficiently um, developed conception of an, what an open society requires. So they're quite happy to shut down the ability of of associations to make their own choices. So they want. Uh, groups to affirm precisely what they think all the way across. So you get cases, for example, where if a religious group, for example, wants to uh, not marry certain kinds of people, 
some groups will argue they shouldn't have that right to refuse to marry because they're of the view that everybody should recognize their own view of marriage. But that's not how a free and open society works. Well, I mean, I tend to agree with that. I, I do think if a nurse does not want to be uh, part of an abortion due to her religious views, uh, she shouldn't have to be. Unfortunately, you do have those people that say, well, due to the fact that she actually, for example, the nurse works in the public sphere, the, in air quotes, secular public sphere, she is forced to perform abortions because it is her duty as a nurse to do so, and her innermost uh, feelings of faith should not actually come into play <coughs> when doing her work, which I found a bit odd because the same people say we should give um, relig- we should have religious holidays. So th- th- there's a contradiction there. So in your ideal pluralistic society, a nurse or a medical officer or a, uh, um, a, a clerk of the court should not have to deal with things that they do not want to if they believe that it is wrong. Yeah. Is that right? <clears throat> I think that's correct. I think that the principle of diversity and accommodation, there are two principles. One, as a general rule, we understand that a free society should be maximally diverse. In other words, it should allow as much as possible there to be different groupings that have different beliefs, different commitments. Similarly, when there's a conflict between uh, belief systems in any setting, but particularly in a public setting, I think a free and democratic society should maximally accommodate the dissenting viewpoint. Okay, So as you put it, the nurse shouldn't be forced to be involved in abortion or a physician shouldn't be forced to do that. Uh, the way certain cases have worked in, in certain European countries or in Canada or South Africa, a public marriage commissioner may, some would say, because of the public nature of the role, be forced to perform same-sex marriages. Um, I dissent from that view myself. I think that we should be able to find scheduling accommodations to maximally accommodate um, divergent viewpoints. Okay. So we should allow people who have different beliefs to opt out. Now, this is threatening to people who believe everyone should affirm what they believe. So certain kinds of activists will say, well, wait a minute. If the state allows a person to dissent from performing a same-sex marriage, they're they're taking the viewpoint of the person refusing to perform the marriage. I don't think that logically follows. I think what the state is doing there is saying our commitment to accommodate dissenting viewpoints where there's legal contestation allowable, i.e., we we allow different views of marriage. This isn't racism. People often say, oh, well, if you allow a marriage commissioner not to perform a ma- uh, marriage for gay people— are you going to allow them to refuse to perform an interracial marriage? Well, that's not analogous at all. An interracial marriages, marriage breaches the general cultural rule that you will not allow racism. That's very different from requiring a particular form of marriage affirmation. It's perfectly acceptable for somebody to believe that marriage should be restricted to a man and a woman. Just yes. as it could be someone who says, I only want to do gay marriages. That's permissible, too. Right. But it's different from saying, I will not marry a black person to a white person. That is racism, and that is not allowable by law. Different viewpoints on marriage are allowable by law. But racism is allowable by law, though. Uh, 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 not, uh, sorry, are you specifically referring to the public sphere yes. of, of the state? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm not I'm not here referring to the what a person may entertain in their mind, right. but what they may take 
to their job function and require a, the employer to accommodate, particularly here a public employer. Okay, so I mean, let's just let's just go down a little bit down that 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 Warren. So, allowing the marriage of a man and a woman is reasonable to most people in the country, for example. South Africa is basically small C conservatives at the end of the day. Most South Africans are in that way. So, uh, your argument is that. It is reasonable for someone to not want to marry a gay couple because they believe marriage is between a man and a woman. And if they refuse to marry interracially, that is not a question about marriage. It's a question about racism. So racism is outlawed in the public sphere. Right. But <clears throat> not gay marriage I'm just struggling with that with that distinction. Yeah. Well, we've we've been told for so long that opposing same-sex marriage is like um, being a racist. But there's a big difference between the two. Racism is a rejection of the person on the basis of something that has nothing to do with choice. The rejection of marital choices is not a rejection of the person, but a rejection of the their moral viewpoint in relation to marriage. It's, pretty, it's a difference. Oh, I see what you mean. Okay, so... so. Now, see, the way that... But the, the false analogy that's been used by LGBT activists, and they've had great success with this, even though it's bogus, is that they say, but you don't have the freedom to be gay. You're born that way, just like you're born white or black. But that's not the question. The question isn't whether you're born with a particular orientation. The question is whether your choices to act on it are always to be... Re- considered morally legitimate or not. And in a free and democratic society, just take a look at standard religious viewpoints. And in fact, you can go before religion to the Greeks. There's a lot written on this. In the Greeks, the Greeks didn't accept the moral legitimacy of, of gay conduct. Kenneth Dover in his famous book on homosexuality talks about this. Now, it's not politically correct to say this nowadays, but the fact of the matter is... Um, moral choices in relation to human sexuality are matters about which reasonable people can disagree, by and large. We have limits on it. We still restrict sexual choices in relation to children. We still restrict them in relation to multiple marriages. Um, Canada had to wrestle with the question of polygamy and whether that was going to be considered legitimate. So sometimes these categorical choices are not that easy for a society to determine where the limits are. But we do recognize that there are desires that are limited by moral conceptions. So, for example, for heterosexuals within religions, heterosexuals are not allowed to have sex with whoever they want in all the main religions. So they have the idea of chastity before marriage and fidelity after marriage, right? Now, um, that's a heterosexual orientation, to want to have sex with somebody is a heterosexual orientation. But the religions restrict where and when you can do that. Similarly, with same-sex relations, they say, you may have the orientation of the desire, but you don't have the moral freedom to act on it. Now, for contemporaries who are raised to think that they're free to do whatever they want, whenever they want, this is a shock, and it's not something they like. And one of the reasons why... Religions often find themselves on the sharp end of the stick with contemporary challenges in law is because they stand for different kinds of moral traditions that are no longer trendy. They're no longer acceptable. 
But a society that has a long history and different constitutional rights has to kind of pull the lens back a bit and say, well, these different traditions, some newer than others, have to coexist. Where are we going to find the principles for coexistence? Right, right. That's a tricky one. But before I go on with you, Ian, excuse me, my co-host is here. I've I've arrived. Hello, Dr. Wood. Have you saved many lives today? Um, I've tried, and uh, then I almost killed myself in traffic. So, uh, <laughs> as, well, as, as, well, just with frustration. Oh, just the frustration. Sheer frustration. Uh, Nevertheless. Ian, I'm terribly sorry to have uh, no, no, kept no, you waiting. Yeah. Uh, thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us. Yes. I've said that already. Well, I'm, I'm sure I'm a you good have. Host. I'm a good host. <laughs> so, basically, to recap, what we've discussed is that the fact that Ian thinks, and I, I tend to agree with this, even if one works in the public sector, we should still take cognizance of their views in terms of religious views or cultural views and that maybe we should be aware that some of their moral principles are conflicted with the, the trendy narrative that we have today. So, for example, Ian made the point that as a, as a, a nurse, for example, in the public sector should hmm. be allowed to um, – how can I explain? Should be allowed to not perform an abortion if she's religious. Yeah. All right. So that's the what we that's that's the the thrust of the argument we're having now. So Ian, for you, religion plays just as an important role in a citizen as any other belief system. Because in the twenty first century religion has been really maybe by us too, has really been seen as a sort of archaic backward type of, of faith that has no real role to play in, in a modern liberal society. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? Well, <clears throat> I mean, I, I think that, the, interestingly, the best passage I've ever read on the relationship between law and religion anywhere is by an atheist judge in South Africa, Albie Sachs, who, who I'm happy to call a friend. Now, Albie, in his Christian education decision in 2000, wrote an absolutely brilliant passage about the importance of religion to culture. And no uh, Catholic judge or Protestant judge or religiously favorable judge I've read anywhere in the world has come within a country mile of, of writing what the, with the sensitivity that this uh, Jewish judge from uh, South Africa has written. And in that passage from that 2000 Christian education decision, I don't have it in front of me, but it goes something like this. That for millions in all walks of life, religion forms their sense of meaning and their relationship to themselves, their community, and the universe. It helps them frame their sense of purpose and, for many of them, is, provides not just the cornerstone of human rights thinking, but gives many people their sense of right and wrong. No, I think he's right about that. Anthropologically, historically, religion has and still does today frame many people's sense of right and wrong. Therefore, it should be handled very carefully when we're talking about whether we're going to encourage it or discourage it through public policy. Uh, in South Africa, you don't have to look very far to realize how important religion has been to health care and to education, two very important areas in a culture. How so? so? Religions were the founders of both of these institutes in Africa. It was through the religious missions that healthcare was introduced and maintained and education. And to this day, the idea of 
moral obligation that we get from religions is still the background of contemporary liberal thinking about obligation. It's ironic. Contemporary liberals frame their understanding of obligation to others through the inheritance of a religious tradition. They can't come up with it themselves. Uh, and this is a big problem for liberalism because I think we're now starting to see the results of new people who are framed without a religious education. And you discover all too often that they say, well, actually, you may think that, but I don't accept it. I'm free to make up my own conception of what's right and wrong. I don't buy yours. And there's no sense of tradition in that. And that's rather worrying to those of us who've looked at, at tradition from the Greeks forward and realize how critical ethical and moral teaching was for the Greeks. I mean, Aristotle, remember, said this in the politics. He said, the student of politics must first understand what? The soul. That's profound. Um, the separation of pol politics, law, medicine, business, all these subsections of culture from moral tradition is a disaster, and it, we're living it right now. You you mentioned in that that uh, quote regarding the soul. So um, I know some skeptics will be saying, "Well, what's the soul?" Because um, that's a very nice sort of term that religion likes to use, sometimes pseudo threateningly, um, because it's you know your your soul will leave your body when you leave this earth, so you'll still exist. So you better make sure you follow the rules uh, the way we tell you to. Um, because your soul's what matters. Um, skeptics will say, well, what's a soul? So how do you define that? Well, first of all, I think that if by skeptic we mean people to ask questions, that's essential. And it was understood from the Greeks, right, you know, from the earliest Socratic dialogues, um, you know, written ultimately by Plato and then developed in a slightly different way by Aristotle. This whole tradition of the Greeks understood that questioning rigorously and firmly is essential. So I don't find skepticism in any way threatening to religion. And I think any religious person should be, uh, should welcome questions. I think it's the only way to know anything is to question it. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the richest aspects of religious tradition involve questions. You get this with the uh, different people questioning Jesus. You get this within Judaism. You have a lot of back and forth in all the great religions. What is truth? What is you know, what is permissible? What is What can you do on the Sabbath? What can't you do? This internal questioning is key to understanding the religions. So your question, what is the soul? Good question. And it's a great question. And it's an important question. Are we only material stuff? Is that what really matters to us? Or can we step back from that question and say, as I've had to say with now my wonderful seven children, I've, we've all gone through this with all of them, when we, because they ask beautiful questions. Children naturally are born asking metaphysical questions. They are born skeptics. Well, or not. They're actually born with some surprising um, dogmas of their own. They respond extraordinarily. They're all different for a start. Their natures are all different. Um, but they ask questions that I, I think lead us to realize that there's more to life than simply matter. And I think any reflective person reaching you know, well, I guess if you're mature early, you, you see this in your teens or 20s, there has to be more to life than simply working to get stuff, right? And I think that anyone who's worked with people, anyone who's been with a person who's struggling, 
knows that what they're really struggling with isn't simply acquisition. It's also purpose. Why am I here? What is this for? Why do I go to work every day? You know, I've got a. As you get older, you start to lose friends. You start to think about mortality. You start to ask questions about why am I here? Well, those are the old questions. They go back millennia. And they're really important questions. And they're most richly asked, I think, within metaphysics, within philosophy and theology. And it's fascinating to me that the contemporary educational process almost systematically strips out theology and philosophy from all these disciplines. That's something we'll get to in a moment. However, Mr. Benson, I've noticed that you failed to answer the question about what is the soul? Well, I can't answer it. I can't answer it except to point to the fact that it's a key, what I said, it's a key yeah. question. I, I think, you know, a lot of the, the problem comes in is, is um, if, if you're very skeptical, uh, even if you have religious background, but you, you, you kind of uh, want to question the things that can't be proven to you. So um, things like souls um, and I, you know, I note that you say about questioning in religion, and it's true. There is a lot of questioning that goes back and forth. Uh, in fact, in uh, one of the sort of major parts of Judaism is the Talmud, which is uh, basically a whole bunch of questions on, answered by learned sages and, and, and essentially rabbis. Um, I'm sure someone will correct me on that, but it's somewhere in that region. Um, point is, is that... Uh, often in, in, in religion, you will find that uh, either a question is answered with a question um, or a question is answered with something that is even more sort of magical and um, doesn't give you any kind of um, something real to grab onto. Uh, and, you know, I think I think this also comes into what you were talking about a little bit before. You, you mentioned uh, that religions form the foundation of, of what is right and what is wrong, but what I'd like to get into, and I don't know where Ramon was going, but um, what happens when religions are wrong, even though they think they're right? So, you know, and that's happening in modern day as society advances. Um, the things that were right in religion 2,000 years ago, um, a 1,000 years later were not acceptable, and a 1,000 years later now are not acceptable, and we, we kind of move forward. And, and sometimes religions resist, and sometimes they give way. Um, I think one of Christianity's successes is that it gave way um, quite often to where society wanted to move, um, and still does, actually. Um, Sorry, I, if I may interject, are yeah. you talking about the practices of religion or, or the beliefs? Well, because those are two separate things. Well, I think well, the beliefs inform the inform the practices. Not always. The ideo- yeah, not always. Um, the ideology informs informs uh, is the ideology, and the belief informs the practice. So. I'm getting to really the conflict you have West versus East at the moment, mainly West versus Middle East. Um, and, you know, the, well, ISIS essentially, fundamental uh, Islamic terror, for example, um, those kinds of beliefs, those are not new. They're not something that was invented when the Americans went into Iraq. Um, <laughs> they've been around for thousands of years. Um, well, about 700 years, and before that, there was there were other religions killing each other. Um, so I just wonder why? Where do where do we take what's right? If that's a foundational tool of our society, where's where do we take what's right, and where do we get rid of what's wrong, and how? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, these are important questions. I, I think I would I would want to start somewhat differently at looking sure. at this idea of whether we have a sense of there being a human nature. 
because it's this analysis of that and our responses to that question that in many ways dictate what comes after that. And most of the religions have something to say about human nature, but they say it, they may answer it differently. We're not able to say that religions are the seat of error. Why? Because we now know that non-religious regimes, if we define religion strictly as a cult in relation to a divinity, right? It may be the case that all the dogmatism, that is, the or fanaticism, or zealotry, to use the religious term, attaches to all human projects. And therefore, human nature is such that no matter what your project, whether it's something as banal as, a, in one case, a cat fancier's club, or a soccer team, or a symphony orchestra, or a um, religious club, or a medical society. Or a constitution. Well, that's a document, but let's look at a human grouping. I'm trying okay. to get at groupings and associations. Sure. Political groups, ANC, um, um, Communist Party, Liberal parties. Donald Trump. All political parties. <laughs> Within every human grouping, there are different personalities. Some of those personalities assume a certain kind of psychological form of the dogmatic person, the dominant person who seeks to use positions or processes to affect their will on everyone else, right? So I think what the 20th century showed us was that whether we're atheists and take a radical Soviet line or a Khmer Rouge line or what have you, we can do horrendous things to other people in the same way that, or maybe to a lesser extent, but in similar ways to which religion did it. And ISIS is doing it now, hmm. whatever ISIS is. In other words, let's go back to my first point. What is human nature? I don't think the problem, and here is where I differ with Hitchens and Dawkins and Sam Harris and the New Atheists. I don't think religion is the seedbed of violence at all. I think there's something in the human psyche that's the seedbed of violence because I see that in atheist regimes and I see it in throughout history in different forms of non-religious movement. Okay. So I want to then ask the question, who has said things about human nature that ring true or are appropriately diagnostic of this human problem and may offer a better way? Now, I don't need to be dogmatic for my own tradition here. I be, I'm a Roman Catholic. Um, but I think that all the great religions and the, many of the new spiritualities and many of the non-religious ethical traditions say similar things here. Namely, look at yourself, understand yourself. It was one of the great things over the temple at Delphi. There were two statements over the doorway at Delphi. The first was, know thyself. Hmm. Okay. The second was, nothing too much. Everything in moderation. Now, these kind of insights, I think, are, take us to this corresponding question about what is human nature. And I think when we start to ask those questions, we see that the difference between religion and non-religion, at least at the, at the starting point, calls us to ask fundamental questions about human being and human purposes. And those are not the questions we're asking and teaching about in public education today. And I think it's a disaster. I mean, I used to be quite big on the new atheism at the time. I thought, you know, here are these people, uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, 
uh, here they are actually, you know, speaking power against this dogmatic, uh, religious indoctrination that we've known. And religion was, was the cause of most issues in the world. Um, only recently, the past few years, I've been reading about, about culture, about history, about the way people believe, the way people think. Uh, if you read Daniel Kahneman's work, Thinking Fast and Slow, I mean, you can see exactly why religion has a place in some people's mind. And in the end, I've concluded that religion is a set of beliefs, just like a belief in, in democracy, just like a belief in a uh, scientific experiment, though that's a bit different. You can test that out. But people do have these metaphysical beliefs, and religion is just one aspect of them. So is your argument that our metaphysical beliefs, which are derived from religion, have a very important role to play in a, in a so-called secular liberal society? Such yeah. as ours. I think it's. I th- I would be surprised that anyone could reject that proposition. Um, look, I'm teaching law now to a lot of students in Australia, and I recently had occasion. It's a Catholic college I teach in Notre Dame, as you said in in the introduction in Sydney, and I asked my students if they knew the parable of the Good Samaritan, and I was astonished in a that very few. The minority of my students in a law school knew the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, just from the point of view of informed narrative, i.e. stories that matter to a culture, for people not to know that story in the Western tradition is, to my way of thinking, not a good thing. Why? Because that story, which is held in common by Judaism and well, certainly Christianity, but in Jew, Jews would understand it very deeply. They have their own stories. But the fact is that idea of who is my neighbor, to whom do I owe the obligation of neighborly cur- courtesy, that is a foundational story and an important one for students and people, citizens to know. Why? Because as citizens, to whom do we owe an obligation? The answer is everyone who comes in in our path who may benefit from our assistance. Is that the legal standard? Maybe not. You know, regimes differ as to whether there's a good, they actually call it a good good Samaritan Samaritan law. law. Right. Mm. But it comes from this idea, this question, who is my neighbor? To whom do I have an obligation? Now, the answer to that will depend on what your tradition is. I taught my children, my wife, my ex-wife and I taught our children, you have an obligation to everyone who needs your help that's in front of you. You see someone who drops a parcel, an old lady, you help them. When you see someone on a bus who's struggling, who needs a seat, you give them your seat. It's not an obli- it's not a, an ob- it's not a, a, a choice. It's not a choice. It's an obligation. Why? It's a moral obligation. Why? Because it's what we should do. Why should we do that? Because it's important for all of us to do that. Now, there's all kinds of ways we can frame this. We can say, oh, we do that because um, in evolutionary terms, if we didn't do that, we'd have chaos and blah, blah, blah. I don't accept that. I think the reason we do it is because there's something rich in the doing of that for itself. There's something good in it. There's something noble in the idea of charitable donation anonymously, which is the Jewish thing. The richest donation you can give as a Jew is anonymously. That's extraordinary to me, but I think it's fabulous. Now, this contemporary post-enlightenment period that we're in, I don't think can last because I think it's been, it's been running like a car on the fumes of an empty tank. And I think the emptiness of the tank is now starting to show that it lacks fumes. 
and we need those fumes. In fact, we need the gas. And the gas is the moral content that made up the Western tradition. And it's not one thing, but it's certainly a group of things, many of which are best encapsulated within the ethical and moral tradition of the Greeks, Romanized and then Christianized. That's the dominant moral frame of the West. Can we embrace Judaism and Islam and other religions and new spiritualities? Yes, we must. Why? Because that's what a plural culture is. Can we avoid civic virtue and the idea of virtues rather than this common and um, vacuous language of values? We have to. We have to get out of the commodification of morals, which is what values is about, towards a richer tradition of virtues. We have to do that. You want to go? Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. Uh, um, what do you mean by we are lacking the the, the gas, so to speak? So it's, the, it's those it's that historical virtues that you were discussing just now. What exemplifies behavior that shows we are lacking those historical virtues? Oh, I think it's all around us. I mean, it's very obvious to us and to our listeners because they listen to us. Uh, but uh, rampant uh, Marxism on campuses and. Uh, Donald Trump, to some extent. Well, you see, neo-Marxism is fascinating because it's, it's no matter what you study now in the contemporary education, outside of narrow enclaves like the one I'm teaching at in Australia, which is a Catholic-based university, by and large, most contemporary arts education is functioning through neo-Marxist categories. So you can study literature, for example, and learn all about hierarchies and gender imbalances and blah, blah, blah. You can study anthropology and sociology, even medicine, medical ethics. And it's all taught through these Marxist ideas of, of external material um, imbalance and power relationships. That's not how I studied literature 20, you know, several decades ago. I studied literature as literature, not as neo-Marxism. If I may just interject. So what makes, maybe that is just the evolution of the way we teach things. What makes you think that the, the Marxist way of teaching something is incorrect as opposed to your views on, on historical virtues? Well, <laughs> because I don't think that, that the, a life well lived is simply one that's analyzed through power. Uh, it, it isn't. It's 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 analyzed through all kinds of things related to what's just and what's true and what's good and what's beautiful. Transcendentals, beauty, truth, and goodness were the three transcendentals. Virtues, which include, by the way, in the for the Greeks, justice, wisdom, moderation, and courage, the four cardinal virtues, and then through the religious traditions, the three theological virtues: faith, hope, and love. The tradition for, for millennia taught that faith, hope, and love transform the cardinal virtues, justice, wisdom, moderation, and courage. Now, those concepts can be taught beautifully in public education, and they can be taught respectful of pluralism. That includes atheists and agnostics. It doesn't have to be religious. But I think we'll agree that in a society that has a constitution like South Africa, the meaning of those terms, unjust discrimination, which invokes justice, right? Equality, all of these terms, they require a richer, richer set of moral constructs to understand what the context is for justice than simply a constitution. All a constitution does is set out the basic framework, the skeleton of the society. Then it throws to the people and to the judges the interpretive task of giving power to those. Well, Woe woe are are we if the only determinant of power are neo-Marxist conceptions. Because the richer language of, as I said earlier, neighborliness, obligation, love, compassion, 
Those are not terms that come from Marx and the marketplace. Marx is singularly deficient in moral language. Anyone who studied Marx knows this. That's true. Compassion, justice, love, those things, the things that really matter to us as human beings, are to be found in other traditions than contemporary constitutionalism. I think if we take that approach that we may lose, uh, I have similar feelings towards Marxism that you do, but um, it seems to me that uh, a lot of, as you refer to it, neo-Marxist theory very much implies that there is huge amounts of compassion, love, uh, and hope uh, within these values or within these teachings. Um, you, you know, the idea of uh, uh, public health care, for example, um, everyone must be equal and we must all access everything equally. Um, and you mentioned bioethics. Uh, I agree with you. It is it is largely taught on those sort of terms. Um, it's it's sold these days as a as an idea that it is thoughtful of everyone and loving of everyone. And actually, you're just full of hate if you are a capitalist or if you believe in uh, any other kind of um, ideology. What do you? What do you think of that? Well, I don't think you can teach medical ethics from simply a a materialistic perspective. And I think the values framework that we're trying to use for medical ethics is bogus. It's bankrupt. To start off with the idea that the center of ethics is autonomy, for example, Mm. is nonsensical. Why? Because the essence of medicine is health. It's the idea of what constitutes a healthy person and, and ultimately the role of, of a health uh, – it invokes the idea of a, what is a healthy society. The idea of autonomy, that the patient mm-hmm. has a right to their choices being effectuated through medicine, mm-hmm. is unjust to the physician and unjust to the, to the whole system. Controversial stuff. Of course it's controversial. The best although, things are. Although if you take that to a broader context, um, you know uh, – uh, Medical autonomy, exactly as you said, says the patient has ultimate right, ultimate final say over themselves. A problem, a good example that we have these days is, uh, so then, uh, vaccination. I have the right not to vaccinate myself. Uh, we know how that ends um, in, a, in, a, in a greater society. Yeah, that's a good example. I mean, there are certain uh, basic norms or goods mm. that a society needs to affirm, even if they're over the autonomy of the individual. And this is why I think this move towards a kind of radical autonomous medicine, which says, I have a right for you to kill me, or I have a right for you to terminate my child, which has nothing to do with medicine. Medicine is a therapeutic endeavor. It's to do with disease, and a healthy pregnancy is not a disease. How did medicine get involved in that? Hmm. It's it's a fascinating thing. I mean, I know that. I know the history of this. I studied it in England when I was doing my first law degree. You know, it came in, there's an old saying in law, hard cases make bad law, right? And in in the decision, in uh, the first decision in the 1930s in England that ushered in what eventually became liberalized abortion laws, a young woman was raped, multiply raped by some guardsmen. And the physician, um, great consultant of the day uh, by the name of Bourne, performed the abortion and was charged under the law of the day. And he was not found guilty because he saved the woman from becoming a nervous wreck. Well, this hard case of a multiple rape led to the situation now where we've changed the whole face of the Western world through abortion. 
millions of people, far more than ever died in the Holocaust, have died on physicians' tables. Now, this is whatever else one might want to say, bizarre, because it is not a therapeutic thing unless you expand the idea of therapy so broadly that it ceases to have any real medical meaning. So what's happened is now a topic that can't even be discussed because it's so emotionally deep and so psychologically traumatic. I mean, for millions of people have been involved in this thing, which is contrary to the best tradition of medicine and in many ways contrary to what a lot of people, many women themselves, wanted. But they found themselves in many cases forced into it. Sure. How how would you uh, well we've gone right there. Um how would you then sort of I mean I I'm not sure if I agree with you on the millions of, of deaths just simply because I I I don't define um a say six week old fetus as, as, as life. But I'm sure we can disagree on, on, on the definitions and I know there are vast disagreements. Right. Um I, I consider viability to be to be life. So for example in the United States, late term abortion to me would be something abhorrent. Um even though I am pro choice. Um <laughs> I don't agree with that choice. But um on on the the sort of Sure, I uh, lost it a little bit. Yeah, the, uh, what I wanted to ask you with regards to um, abortion, what would you say in terms of, you know, the woman's right to choose? I mean, that is the big sort of um, selling line. So, so on abortion, it's 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 my body. I know. Um, and if we if we talk about and you know we we are classically liberal in our approach to 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 life, I suppose, um, in the sense of individuals and their agency, and so that fits into that it becomes complex when there's another being involved and and you know that that is a maybe a larger discussion but what do you what do you feel about about that in terms of violating if you if you if you protect the baby or the fetus or however you want to term it from the beginning um what does that mean for the rights of the mother yeah well this is i mean there's let me start off first of all by saying the standard thing that many people listening to this will say is, look, this is three guys talking on a talk, on a radio program. Mm. What do guys have to say about that, this? That's one of the, the original place. identity politics, isn't it? Yeah. That only women can talk about this because only women can be pregnant. Um, well, I, I think probably a bit of reflection on that shows that, in fact, every human being has a vested interest in the abortion issue because all of us have been fetuses. So... I don't have a lot of time for the identity political spin. I have a huge amount of compassion for a society that has done what ours has done, which is to at the same time develop technology and liberalize sexuality and then somehow contrive to walk away from what results by forcing, in many cases, women to go through what is for many of them something they really don't want. Some. I mean, even a woman who does it and believes it's justifiable under the rubric of choice doesn't do it lightly. I think that's true. And the question is, as, are we as a society doing the best we can to make, um, to make options, to make choice, in fact? Or are we, in fact, foreclosing choices by pushing people towards the abortion decision? I don't know the answer to this. I haven't studied this stuff for a long time. There mm. was a period when I was very up on the literature and thought about it and wrote about it and so forth, published stuff on it. I moved away from the abortion debate in the same way as I moved away from the euthanasia debate. 
and I moved away from the same-sex marriage debate. But I've realized something now, which is that they're all. Do you know the story of the tar baby? The tar baby is a it's a it's a fable. It might be an Aesop fable. I'm not sure who originated it, but in essence, there's this um, wily um, way of capturing some um, the fast running rabbit, and, and the fox creates this tar baby, this thing created covered in tar, and and dares the rabbit to go and touch it. And says, I bet you can't touch it and run away. Well, of course, the inevitable happens. The rabbit runs up, hits the tar baby, and gets stuck to it. And then uses his other paw to try and free the first paw and mm. ends up like flypaper. He's stuck to the tar baby. The point being, there's certain issues which you wish you could get away from, mm. but they're kind of stuck there. And let me just say this. I don't think that our society is actually free of these issues. Some people will be saying, listening to this, oh my goodness, they're talking about abortion. That's been settled decades ago. This is old hat. Well, I don't think it is. I think that the ethics of medicine and its, its commitment to the idea of therapy and the fact that pregnancy is not a disease unless you extend it, the concept of mental health to the point where it's basically accepting any choice, um, I don't think it's settled at all. And not only that, I think that there will be issues of world demographics that will force us to rethink this. I, I think that the immigration issue, which Western countries have placed under brackets of do not discuss, it's too hard to discuss immigration, are in part driven by the fact that the immigration movements paralleled the abortion rates. So that in Canada, if you traced Canada's liberalized abortion in the, in the 60s and 70s, their immigration changes virtually were necessary to cover the po missing population from abortion. Yes. That was the case in the U.S. as well and in Europe. So what's happened is we've changed the face of the Western world in ways we can't discuss, either issue direct on abortion itself or immigration, which is the secondary thing. We can't discuss those because they raise this deeper question that we run away from, which is about um, morality and um, sex, so that we end up, I think, in a real knot with, as you put it earlier, I think correctly, the sort of center of the liberal commitment is to a, the autonomous self, right? But th that only works so far because we're not actually entirely autonomous. The root of the word autonomy is two Greek words meaning self-law, autonomos. We're not actually laws to ourselves. We can't be. Why? Because we only know ourselves through relationship, and we only live well in a community, in a bunch of associations. So this self-law concept that seems to be the core to liberalism is a problem. Hmm. Right. Uh, Professor, we have five minutes remaining on the clock. So in, if you had to summarize your conception of a society in which you wish to live, or perhaps a society which we should espouse to become. How would you put that into a paragraph? Um, I would like to see us, and I don't know how we do it now, it would be a, a movement, I think, akin to the construction concept of backfilling a hole. Uh, be like backfilling. But I, I would like to see us learn what civic virtues are and then start teaching them in public education. I would like us to understand 
that the problems we're looking to external governance to solve, namely politics and law, can't be solved by politics and law, but can only be solved through associational life. The contemporary German philosopher Jürgen Habermas has made a distinction between what he calls life worlds and systems. And he points out, I think quite brilliantly, that we live in life worlds, sports, musical groups, religions, our associations, the things that give us our life, that give us our joy. But those life worlds are regulated by systems, and that systems, law being a system and government being a system, are parasitic on life worlds. They draw the energy, they draw the money from life worlds, from all those things we live. But they have a negative effect, which is that they can colonize them. They can actually take the life out of them. And so I would like to say, one, teach civic virtues and learn what they are. And two, understand the limits of law and the limits of government and politics. Because we cannot, and this term is used in South Africa all the time, transformation. We cannot have a really transformative culture without limiting law and limiting government. I would tend to agree with you as someone who hates the state as much as I do. <laughs> Excuse me. Well, Professor, I mean, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. A great hour that's passed by very quickly, unfortunately. But, I mean, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's been um, a pleasure. And I know that you're in the country fairly often, so hopefully we can have you back. I'd like that. Thanks yeah. for your excellent D- questions. Dig a bit deeper into some of these <laughs> very uh, controversial issues, which we can discuss here, you know, yeah, even yeah. if people are currently swearing at us <laughs> or into their phones uh, too late now yeah um it, it's it would be interesting to but to, it's, it's to ironic discuss further it's ironic that this kind of program is now increasingly the the free space that the mainstream things are increasingly restricted i find that fascinating well they, they, were, they were all went through public education i'm afraid <laughs> yeah and and also the the i think 20 maybe 30 years ago Maybe I'm wrong. It's uh, perhaps 2020. But if you reflect reflect back on um, liberalism and where it sort of sat, um, it might have reached the perfect point, And then for some reason, it always kind of seems to drive it a little bit too far. Um, and I think, I think if I was an American 30 years ago, I would have been happy to call myself a liberal. Uh, today, I wouldn't dare call myself a liberal in the United States. It just doesn't line up with, with my beliefs. Um, but yeah. Anything else from your side, Ramon? Uh, no, from my side, that is all well. Thank you once again, Mr. Benson, for coming through. Sorry, is it Professor Benson? Uh, I do apologize. Professor's fine. All right. Well, thank you, Professor, for joining us. And yeah. hopefully we will see you back when you're ever in the country. We, we, we know each other. so oh, thanks, no, for, thanks for your questions. No I doubt we'll it. see each other again. Thank yeah. you so much. And for you, Wits, uh, you've been here three quarters. You enjoyed that? Yeah, that was that was great. Uh, I think we can uh, we can do a lot more for sure uh, in the future. Uh, I'm uh, gonna just uh, tell you you know where to find us on Twitter and on Facebook. Um, you can obviously uh, give us a like, and we always like your reviews on iTunes. Uh, please tell everyone about the show. I think this will be an interesting one for everyone to listen to. Thanks so much, and we'll catch you next time. Cheers. Central.com